If you will, uh, open your Bibles back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you remember last week, we began to tackle these first 12 verses of this chapter. And I even admitted last week that we were going to spend much time uh, in these verses and that we were going to have to unpack different sections uh, of these verses as well. Our uh, selection for tonight is verses 3 through 8, really the second half of verse 3, after that colon, all the way through verse 8, as the Apostle Paul begins to teach us about sexual immorality. And even as we looked at the exhortations in which Paul spelled out for us here in these 12 verses, you remember, if you were with us last week, that there were three specific areas uh, that Paul addresses here within these dozen verses. First, sexual immorality. Second, brotherly love. And third, diligence uh, in one's calling as a Christian on this side of glory. Lord willing, we'll handle each of those uh, in a week's time. So tonight, very specifically, uh, sexual immorality. And so let us hear from God's Word again. We're going to read verses 1 through 8, again focusing on verse 3b through verse 8. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity but for holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God for it. Well, here in our text, as we think about how Paul has commanded us to become what you are, to walk in holiness and walk in holiness more and more, And as he says that we need more holiness, we need to be sanctified in these three areas of sexual immorality, brotherly love, and diligent in one's calling or one's work, we come to this hard subject of sexual immorality. And as Paul tackles this subject of sexual immorality, he actually does it in two very direct ways. He gives us first a general direction... And then he begins to give us specific direction. He gives an overarching statement of sexual immorality. And then he gives us some specific applications for how to live a sexually moral life. And so you look at verse 3b, that last half of verse 3, and you see that general direction. This is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. 
Now, before we can even dive into what Paul is discussing and the language that Paul uses in addressing this very general directive, we have to understand that all of our conversation, even the Lord Jesus Christ, as He begins to have conversations about sexual immorality, He always draws the reader back to Genesis 1 and 2. He he tells us that the Lord has established sexual purity. That the Lord has established where sexuality must be held. Uh, He he tells us very quickly in in Genesis 1 and 2 that the Lord created male and then He created female. And it's in that marriage, within that family unit between husband and wife, that sexuality ought to be held as the highest honor. In fact, one of the, probably one of the greatest things that I've uh, read in the past number of weeks is from a book that, that Lee has taken the deacons through during their uh, stated meetings called The Masculine Mandate by Richard Phillips, who is the pastor of Second Pres in Greenville, South Carolina. He, he begins to direct the reader to kind of ponder the things of Genesis 1 and 2. How God creates all the world. He creates the skies and the seas, the land and the animals who inhabit the land and the birds that inhabit the skies and the fish that inhabit the seas. And and as He creates the world, He sees all that He has created and He says that it is good. And, And yet on day six, as He creates Adam first, He looks upon His creation that is good and He says there is something that is not good. There's something that is not finished. I cannot rest yet because I am not done with my work. He says the fish have compliments. The birds have compliments. The the animals, the beasts of the field, they have compliments. And yet there is no helper for Adam. And so he puts Adam into a deep sleep. We know the story of creation. He puts Adam into the deep sleep and he, he creates Eve, the first woman from the rib of the man. And he says, as he wakes up Adam from this supernatural sleep, Adam, here is your wife. And do you remember as Adam sees his wife for the first time, he says, at last, flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. And then it's when God Himself begins to give these creation mandates to man and woman. He tells them to have dominion over all creation. He says, this world that I have created, it is yours and you are to rule over it and you are to work it to provide for you and your household food. And you are to fill it. You are to procreate. You are to make babies, covenant children, so that the whole world would be full of people who are in sweet communion with me as their God. And so God gives these creation mandates to man and woman, so that He might create families. The original building block of all of creation is the family. He creates a family first. We've actually been studying a book together in Sunday school called The Battle for the Biblical Family. And one of the things that struck me that I guess I didn't even think about early on in our study of this book is that God did not create first a church. He did not first create a society. He did not create first a civic organization. He created a family. He created man and woman so that they might fill the earth. And from them, this first man and woman, husband and wife, 
We would have families who would have households who would have societies. And ultimately, who would have churches. And so he tells us that, that sex and sexuality are given to, to fulfill what God has commanded. To fulfill this, this mandate of, of filling the earth with, with Christian families so that we might have Christian society, so that we might have Christian churches who walk in the ways of the Lord. But also, what's implied for us here, as we see not only the creation of the first household or the first family in Genesis 1 and 2, but as you move into Genesis 3 and you see the consequences of sin, you actually have implied here that sexuality, this God-given command for Christian men and women, husbands and wives within the family unit, is not just a mandate, but it's given for our enjoyment and our pleasure. That is something that we have to be uh, very aware of. That, that God has given us a sexuality within the marital union for the enjoyment and pleasure of the husband and the wife. And, and, this, and this enjoyment and this pleasure in our sexuality then pours from it. Uh, the mandate, the accomplishment of the mandate in which God has commanded for His people. How gracious is our God, right? That, that He would give us something that is pleasurable and enjoyable for us to accomplish the tasks that He has given. It, it gives a whole new meaning, doesn't it, to, to David's declaration that your mandates, your laws are a joy to me. For the Christian husband and wife, that is to be uh, our very heart posture when it comes to sexuality within our marital unions. And, and you see here that, that, as, that as Paul draws your attention to, to sexual immorality here in these declarations in verse 3, as he tells you to abstain from, from those ways in which sex and sexuality has been perverted by the world around these Thessalonian believers. He doesn't mince words or, or even speak with, with vagueness. He, he actually tells us this, this word abstain, it cuts like a knife because he wants you to see the severity of sexual immorality. If we were to, to scratch at the Greek word here is porneia. Porneia is where we derive our word for pornography. It, it contains within its definition a, a, a wide range of, of sexual acts that go far beyond what God has designed to happen in sexual unions between one man and one woman uh, in a covenantal relationship. And so I actually read a commentator who said that you should, uh, in your mind, draw, draw a big circle and the way, that we should, the way that we should tackle this very uh, general direction is that within this circle we should have sexuality is between one man and one woman in covenantal union of marriage. And anything outside of that circle is off limits. Anything outside of that circle ought to be abstained from. Anything outside of that circle, Christians should 
distance themselves from it or avoid it or keep free from it. And the assumption in which Paul writes here as he commands these believers to abstain from sexual immorality is that they actually can do it. That it ought to be done. You, you, think, about the, you think about the context in which Paul has already discussed these exhortations. If you let your eyes fall back at verse 1, you have received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. And you're doing it. But you need to do it more and more. And so he says, under the, the power of the Holy Spirit, we have victory over sexual immorality. We, we cannot coddle this, this deep sexual perverted uh, desire in which we have. Because we're sin-tainted, we, we desire sexual immorality. And, and what this therapeutic world will tell you is that you should just say, I can't help it, therefore I must embrace it. And, and Paul says that the Christian cannot be that way, but, but Paul says we are directed by the Lord to abstain from sexual immorality. Anything outside of that circle. But then in verses 4 and 5, he begins to give us very specific directions. He, he actually, in verses 4 and 5, begins to discuss for us uh, many different uh, direct applications uh, for us to understand. And, and the first one here comes in verse 4. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now I'm going to, to, to tread on some thin ice with you. And I'm going to do it very carefully. Because I know that there's some of you here uh, who, are, who are looking at the text that we just read and you're saying, I have a New King James Version and that's not what it says. I actually think the New King James Version gets the translation of the original Greek more right. I think there's some truth to what the ESV is saying here. I think that, of course, it is right and it is good for us to have a control over our own bodies. That, that truth is even underlined for us in places like 2 Corinthians 4, 2 Timothy 2. We are to work out our own calling and election. We are to mortify sin and pursue Christ's likeness. And, and yet, at the very same time, what the New King James Version says is that you must possess your own vessel. Or he must possess his own vessel. And I think that's actually more accurate to the original language. And, and let me tell you why. Because what we have here in, in verse 4, this idea of control, the original Greek word there is actually translated almost 90% of the time in your Bibles as possess. You must possess. And, and what we actually see there in his own body, actually, you might even have a, have a little sub-note there, is better translated as how to possess a wife for himself. Even all the early manuscripts seem to translate it in that way. 
that, that the best way to fight against sexual immorality in our culture is to possess for you a godly spouse. To keep oneself from sexual immorality in a corrupt age in which we are living. Paul seems to be saying that that the best way to fight sin in this area of sexual immorality is through the blessing of marriage. And, and that's put on clear display for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, isn't it? As Paul is exhorting man and woman, he reminds husbands and wives that our bodies are not our own, but they belong to our spouse. And, and we are not supposed to withhold our bodies from our spouses unless it's a, a, almost like a season of fasting. Uh, so that we might pray and seek the Lord together. And it actually goes a step farther for the wife, and it says, wives, you are supposed to allow your husband to enjoy your body so that you might help him fight sin and temptation. The Scriptures know how men are wired and how men's hearts are tainted. That the desire is for immorality and sexuality. And, And so... It is this idea that the best way to fight against that men, the best way to fight against that women is to, is to yoke yourself in a covenantal union with a godly man and woman. It's essential in this fight against sexual immorality. It's essential in the pursuit of sexual purity. And, and you might be saying, well, Matt, I really don't like that, that language of possessing his wife or possessing his vessel don't, don't get bent out of shape of how the, 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 the Bible is speaking. This, this possession is something that's obtained. Okay? It's not, uh, Paul's, Paul's not saying that a, a wife is merely a piece of property. Rather, this, rather than it, it's, it's acquiring something that we long for and that we enjoy. And this idea of a vessel as it's uh, most faithfully translated is something that a husband might pour his sacrificial love and, and service into. You know, we, we, we like, as, as men, we like to remind our wives of that, that phrase in Ephesians 5, you know, the Scriptures say you must submit to your husband. Uh, and and, and we, we love pulling that card, playing that card, and, and yet we miss the gravity of, of what's being said to the man. Because the man is now going to answer for the way in which he leads his wife. In fact, what Paul says is, with a dignity and respect and an honor for your wife, men, you are going to answer for her sanctification. How you have led her in the ways of the Lord and how you have encouraged her to become more holy and walk closer with her God. And so, in a covenantal union... There is an honor, a dignity, a respect for the spouse. And also at the same time, as 1 Corinthians 7 says, we must guard one another from the temptation of sexual immorality. And and he says that this idea of a, a biblical sexuality, as we get very specific here, within the marriage, it it draws a, a, a different look than what the sexuality of the Gentiles are putting on display. He, he says there in verse 4, each one of you 
know how to control his own body. There's some truth there. I think it's better each one of you possess his own vessel, his own wife, to fight against sexual immorality. But we should not give in to the, the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now, now one of the things that we have to understand is that as he speaks about this passion of lust, it's almost as if he's speaking of this kind of longing or desire. And of course, longing and desire can be good and it can be bad. We can long and desire for good things like being in heaven with our Savior Jesus. Or even in Song of Songs as, uh, as, you know, as Solomon writes about how he longs for his wife in the marital bedroom. That is a good longing. Daniel in Daniel 10 longs for food. And of course, that's a good longing. But Paul's not talking about a good longing here. A good passion. He's talking about a, a lustful passion that is explicitly sinful, that is explicitly bad, that explicitly and directly talks about sexual perversion. And, and as Paul moves into these specific directives, he's not just talking about those sins that are outside the circle. Of course, we like to hone in on, especially within our culture, things like transgenderism and, and homosexuality, but he is also talking about the sins inside the circle as well. That there are boundaries, that there are limits to the way that we show honor and dignity to our spouse within the covenantal union, within the marital bedroom. And so he tells us that we must also treat our spouse well. And any time that we treat our spouse like a passion lust of the Gentiles, we're proving that we do not know God. In the marital bedroom, what Paul is speaking of here in our sexuality between one man and one woman, husband and wife, in covenantal union with one another, we must know that not only is this a gift from God, but it's a way that we serve each other with dignity. You know, I know that we're in mixed company here, and I was actually debating how to say this with, with, with Lee uh, as we were talking before church. But brothers, husbands, we cannot treat our wives like gross scenes of a pornography film. You know, one of the things that I have been just turned off by is, is a number of, of marriage uh, counseling books that are that are just completely and honestly vile within the subjects in which they tackle. It, it was funny, the, the one book in which I still have in uh, my book collection at home is, is written by a guy named Mark Driscoll. He started uh, a mega church out on the West Coast. He fell from, he fell from grace. Uh, he was disciplined. He was kicked out of all the networks. He started a new church in Scottsdale, Arizona. Stay far away from him. Um, he used to be the, the poster boy of, of the young, restless, and reform movement. Uh, and, and yet he wrote a book called Real Marriage with His Wife, and it would make a sinner blush. And, and the things that he says we ought to do in the marital bedroom that are just vile and, and wicked. And even I was telling Lee that I had a professor who, uh, in seminary, uh, he was an adjunct professor. He was not on uh, permanent faculty, but they had him in to, 
to teach a counseling class, and he was speaking of a, a marriage conference uh, in which he would have each and every year in his church. And, and, and on the last night of the marriage conference, the husband of the marital union was able to write on a, a postcard the acts in which he wanted to perform with his wife after dinner. And they couldn't say no. It, they had to give in to those acts. And he admitted, and, and sadly he was uh, joking about some of the things in which they wrote about that they wanted to do with their wives. And, and quite frankly, some of the, even the examples that they, he gave about his own church members were disgusting. Conferences, marriage conferences are pushing this idea that there's no limits within the marital bedroom But what Paul is saying here is that we cannot treat our spouse with these sinful pleasures because if we do so, if we we do so, we're showing that we have no knowledge of the the one true God. He says if we are, if, if our view, rather, if our view of sexuality is simply about our own pleasure, and not the dignity and honor and the pleasure and the enjoyment of our spouse, then we are, are committing great sin, grave sin against a, a holy God. And he actually tells us that, doesn't he? He says in verse 8, Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. And so Paul is saying very clearly here, the, the sins outside of the circle, they're off limits. They should be abstained from. And the Lord says so. But even the sins within the circle, when there's a lack of dignity and honor and affection and mutual pleasure and enjoyment within the, the sexual union of a husband and a wife, a man and a woman, those sins are forbidden as well. Thus saith the Lord, And so we must take it seriously. But then in verse 6, he also gives us this frightening warning as he gives us very specific directions. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. What is Paul saying? Is he moving subjects? Is he transitioning to this idea of brotherly love and affection that we ought not to transgress or wrong our brother? I don't think so. I think he's still talking about sexual immorality, and I think he's still talking about sexual immorality simply because of those three words. In this matter. You see, in the culture in which uh, the culture in which the, the Thessalonians lived, marriage was nothing more than, than a social contract. And it was something that could easily be dealt with uh, in, in a court system of the Roman Empire. And, and so men stole their brothers' wives constantly. And even sometimes the wives would go willingly to their husbands' friends or other family members. And the civil authorities of that culture not only uh, would allow it, but they would applaud it. And, And yet, what the Lord is commanding us here in this sexual immorality is that we're not to defraud, cheat, get better of, be greedy for our brothers' wives 
or our, our friends' spouses. But we must be, as we often say, one woman men or one men women. You know, that is very important for us because, you know, the, the temptation of the heart is to covet what our neighbor has. That's very explicitly before us in the Ten Commandments, isn't it? But we must be reminded that there is a limit to, to how we are to pursue our wives and our husbands. And, and we cannot go trading husbands and wives for that is sexual immorality. And, and even if we're searching for a husband or a wife, we cannot go and covet what our friend has, his wife or her husband, and take, and take them for ourselves because the Lord is the avenger of all such. Well, you know, Paul, Paul is saying, I know, that, I know that the culture's government, I know that the magistrates, they won't hold you accountable for this sin. They applaud this sin. They accept this sin. But the Lord will be the avenger against this sin if you sit there and defraud your brother and take his spouse or take her spouse. And severe will be the judgment, in fact. And so we, we understand, don't we, that, that Paul has given us some very specific directives. That, that we are to be careful in the ways in which we live, in the ways in which we are married, even in the ways that we enjoy sex within the marital union. And, and he tells us very clearly that God has not called us, in verse 7, for impurity, but for holiness. You know, here it is that we have to understand that, that our world, our culture, sees sexuality as something, something filthy. And if I can just be frank for a minute, kind of the more, the more dirty it is, the more filthy it is, the better. Our, our culture has told us that, uh, that marital unions do not matter and people ought not to care that there is no moral anchor, we might say, within sexuality in this world. That we can push the limits. That we can test the waters. And in fact, what uh, Paul is saying here is that uh, we must not play with fire lest we be burned. We are called to abstain, to live a life of, of holiness. You know, what, what has become so obvious uh, to me as I, I watch the culture around us, especially in regards to sexuality, is that pagan religion seems to be uh, duplicated or reduplicated here before us. Because pagan culture, pagan religion in Paul's time did not demand sexual purity. But, but gross, immoral actions were acceptable and promoted there was no such thing as scandal within sexuality and that's exactly what we see today you know our environment is charged with sexual immorality our our our, our society is all about constantly pushing the boundaries of sexuality and, and we must we must be a people who take sexual immorality the sin of sexual immorality very uh, seriously. We must 
dig down deep to, to kill it. We cannot be comfortable with it. You know, John Owen uh, preaches a sermon. It's recorded for uh, the reader in, in, I think, the sixth volume of his works. It says, Sin aims always at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, it might have its own course. It would go out the utmost sin in that kind. He's talking about sexual immorality. He's talking about how sexual immorality not only has lasting consequences, but it will rise your heart to more temptation and more enticement to sin. You know, the greatest or the most foolish thing we could think is that we can control this fire that's within us of of sexual immorality. But the hope of the Gospel is that we must put that identity behind us. You know, he tells us in 1 Corinthians, such were some of you, talking about sexually immoral people. But we must be deeply committed to a godly view of sexuality, a biblical view of of marriage and sex within the marital union. And and we we must embrace and enjoy the good news of the Gospel. That that we can be victors even over the deepest sins of our flesh. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank You for the opportunity to come to this Your Word. And we know, Lord, that we have spent much time in it dissecting these few verses of the Apostle Paul. And yet, Lord, how fitting it is to be reminded of Jesus' words there on the Sermon on the Mount, how He parallels the the sexually immoral, to the very heats of hell. And so, Father, as Jesus Himself takes sexually immoral sins seriously, let us also take it seriously. Let us be on guard. Let us control our own bodies. Let us fight against the immorality that our flesh desires so that we might live uh, in holiness. And Father, let us be reminded of this very simple yet powerful declaration that if, we, that if we forget, or, or that if we cast aside what You have commanded to be sexually pure, Father, we, we must be reminded that we are not just rejecting mere words of men, but we are rejecting the very words of God. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be able to fight sin, that we would be able to uh, flee and abstain from the sins of our flesh so that we might more and more walk in the ways of Christ's likeness. Uh, We pray this for Your Son's sake and in His name. Amen.